Can growing your own produce in your backyard bring a family back together? In honor of Mother's Day month, we are featuring a series of special episodes around the topic of mothers, mothers in all their facets. Mother Earth, real mothers, grandmothers, what are the lessons and what is the wisdom of motherhood? This is part two in this series and we are focusing on a story of a family that grew together in the form of fresh vegetables and in the form of a family union all through their work in their own backyard. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. There's a power mothers have to hold or bring the family together, beautifully told in a new memoir titled Orchard House, How a Neglected Garden Taught One Family to Grow. And the author is our guest today, here on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. But first, here's our week's review. Yes, Helga, you were telling me about a new app for yoga and mindfulness. What is this app again? Yeah, I'm part of a group of entrepreneurs, people with good ideas that want to change the world. And this gentleman just launched uh, Yoga Tailor. It's a new app. It features 400 plus yoga sequences. And it's basically your way or your ability to customize your own yoga practice. You know, yoga studios can be expensive, even though the community there is very important. But when you're on the road, when you don't have time to drive to a studio, when you just want to have a you know 20 minute, 40 minute, 15 minute practice of mindfulness calming down in this kind of busy, constantly busy world where you're always on that app, again, Yoga Tailor allows you to put together your practice, either as a beginner or as an intermediate or an advanced yogi on all levels. It's free right now. I think the plan is to charge a minimal amount later on. But for right now, if you want to check it out. And the founder really did this out of the passion from his own healing. He had a snowboarding accident in the 80s and sought different modalities to heal, to get better and found yoga to be really, really beneficial. So he just launched Yoga Tailor. Check that out. Well, I, I love this concept of tailoring a practice to fit not just your your level of familiarity with yoga and your time whenever you want to do it, but also what your goals are. Because when you sign up for the app, it asks you, you know, beginner, intermediate or advanced level. But then it says, you know, what is your goal? Do you want to sleep better? Do you want to have more focus? Do you want to improve your strength or improve your flexibility? And so you have these questions questions that you answer based on what it is that you want to work on. And that's what they mean by tailoring a practice to fit you because they pull from all of these different videos that they've recorded and put together a customized sequence based on your goals. I think it's really quite ingenious. That's a really good point. Usually, I think yoga or any kind of considered exercise wakes you up. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can actually select in this case, and, and yoga has that, of course, in the studios too, um, a yin practice, much softer, where you hold 
really calming poses for a long time. And I can tell you, I often fall asleep in a studio doing those poses. It's just wonderful. So if you have a challenge sleeping and if it's not about strength and energy and focus, but actually the opposite, you just want to relax after a busy day, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of just three, four poses held for five minutes, you will fall asleep or you might fall asleep so much faster and sleep so much better. It's amazing and what that's you can a, do. And that's a good point because that's another thing they ask is how much time do you have or how much time do you want to practice? So if you yes. only want five minutes, if you want 15, if you want 45, they'll customize it. I just, I think it's smart. It's a great example of how we, we spoke about that with Love Thy Nature, a documentary about nature that we featured a couple of weeks back, three weeks back, I believe, um, Love Thy Nature, and how we are now at the brink of a new technology revolution where technology actually brings back uh, nature, brings is used to incorporate nature in a better way, to stop this kind of on button for 24-7 that we are exposed to, if we like it or not. We are constantly available through our devices. And I don't think we will ever get back to a place of no technology. So the question now is how can we use technology with the wisdom of nature and incorporate that? This is a great step forward. Again, check it out. A new app. It's called Yoga Taylor. And you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. There's a power mothers have to bring family together. And that's our conversation in this hour about motherhood and family, as told in a new book that offers some life lessons from generations of gardeners. That and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And today we are featuring the story of a family that grew together by growing produce together in their backyard, all as part of our Mother's Day month of May focus on motherhood. But before we dive into that interview, as always, here is Sitarani Palomar, a.k.a. Chef Sita, and her holistic bite. Mm, thanks, Helga. Today I am talking about something delicious in the world of baked goods because right now we are seeing blueberries. Blueberries are showing up on shelves 
everywhere. And I know there are a lot of blueberry pancakes and blueberry muffins being made right now and wanted to share some of my favorite tips for how to preserve the blueberries when you're baking. So the two things that happen when you are making muffins, the blueberries will sometimes sink to the bottom. And when you are making blueberry pancakes, they oftentimes will burst and make your pancake batter purple. So couple tips. When you are making blueberry muffins, in order to keep those blueberries from sinking to the bottom of the muffin batter and having just all the blueberries there and having it be kind of a little bit wet and messy in the bottom, toss the blueberries with a little bit of flour before you add it to the batter and very gently fold it in. And what happens is if you coat it in a little bit of the flour that's from your dry mix is it it kind of creates this protective barrier that keeps the blueberries from sinking too far low because it's going to grasp onto the other batter and also keeps it better intact. So moving on to pancakes, keep your blueberries plump in your pancakes by not putting them in the batter right away. Rather, what you wanna do is, you know, you dispense a little bit of that pancake batter onto your griddle and then drop the blueberries on top while it's still a little a little wet. And you can add a little more batter on top to seal those blueberries in. But because you're waiting to put the blueberries into the batter once it goes on the griddle instead of folding it in, they don't burst while you're mixing it and turn your pancake batter purple. And also they stay whole instead of when they hit that heat as you're as you're baking them, as you're cooking them on the griddle, they don't burst there. So try it out. Let us know how it's successful and how your families and friends enjoy these whole intact blueberries because there's nothing like a sweet, juicy blueberry bursting in your mouth. Thank you, Sita. That's Sita's holistic bite. Wow, yes. You, you almost said balooberries. Balooberries. And they're, they're that fun. Baloo, <laughs> Baloo the bear is maybe one of my favorite characters. And yes, that's why maybe blueberries. They uh, are kind of a playful fruit, aren't they? Yeah, and it's one of those hand fruits that Earl Herrick from Earl's Organic Produce with What's in Season later in the show always says there, you know, there are only a handful of hand fruits where you can just buy one and, and eat it. Pears, apples, whatever. Blueberries are are that. You buy a box of blueberries and it's such a great snack and it's so delicious and it's so good for you. Quick question. Have you ever heard or tried using frozen blueberries for the pancake? Like, could you buy fresh ones, put them in the freezer for an hour or two, and then use them in batter so that they bake later? Actually, what happens is because the when you freeze them and the moisture gets, it's like a little bit more available because you're bursting the cell walls. So when you put frozen blueberries into muffin or pancake it's batter, worse. yeah, well, what ha- they're more of likely course. to burst and the, the moisture as it starts to thaw is going to seep into your batter and turn it purple which is fine you know you can have purple pancake batter that's fine but there's something really cool about pancake colored pancake batter with these little bursts of blueberries when you bite into it so try the tip thank you thanks sita sita rani palomar and her holistic bite orchard house how a neglected garden taught one family to grow a beautiful new book a memoir that is our focus in this hour and we have the author on the phone with us who's joining us today from Cleveland, Ohio. It's Tara Austin Weaver. Tara, are you with us? I am. Hello. Great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Um, oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. 
We're focusing throughout the month, the Mother's Day month of May, on stories around mother, mother earth, motherhood, birth mothers, daughters, their relationships. And your book stood out when we researched that topic. There's so many angles that you were able to touch on that are applicable really to all of our lives. It's a story of rehabilitation and cultivation how a neglected garden, the garden of the family, as well as the physical garden. Tell us about your story. Orchard House is, the, is really the, the name that we've given to the, to the house and the garden that I discovered, I stumbled upon it when my mother was looking to move from San Francisco to Seattle, where I live and my brother lives and her grandchildren live. And it was um, one of those really dubious real estate listings with very dark, grainy photos that you just know are going to be no good. Um, but it was on half an acre of land within the city limits, which is quite unusual for Seattle. And it had a greenhouse, and it had a little cottage in the garden, and I was just curious to see it. I never thought that we would buy it. Um, but we went there one day with the kids, and it was September, late summer, and we just all fell in love with this completely overgrown neglected garden, blackberry vines everywhere, and the kids sort of went running off into this, this wilderness and came back with berry stains on their faces and their arms filled with Asian pears, and it just was this magical place, and we all fell in love with the property, um, but also the potential, at least I know for myself, I was really excited about the idea of something that we could all work on together because my family had sort of um, pretty much been a, you know, by definition, broken family. My father left when I was two and my mother was pregnant with my younger brother. And we had, you know, sort of gotten through some really rough years, but never really gelled. I mean, we, we sort of, I, I like to say that we don't really have the glue that you imagine holding families together. But we had always had a garden. My mother raised us in the early days of the organic food movement and was a single mom, worked um, entirely to support us, but also grew a lot of our food out of necessity and also out of enjoyment for it. Um, and the idea of having another garden for the grandchildren and also really as a place for us to come together. And I had been studying permaculture at the time and was really excited to have this canvas to, to experiment with and, and plan on a large scale. So it, it, we really went into it very hopefully, I think, um, but I, definitely with a mind to family and also growing food. Sure, I can I can see the picture of you know seeing your kids come back with blueberry stains and Asian pears and the the health that was shown to you must have felt so completely right. But I do want to spend another second on your relationship to your mom at that point. Uh, you know the 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 transformational power of the garden, why would you or how did you consider even owning this piece of property with your mom? Was that already kind of in your hopes that this might help or uh, wasn't that the last thing you would consider living with your mom? And <laughs> well, I have to say that I was very hesitant about her moving to Seattle at all. We sort of, our relationship worked best at a distance. I actually lived overseas for a number of years and that was probably the the easiest chapter of our relationship because I think, you know, at least for myself, I always sort of longed for that warm, supportive family. But sure. the reality of us when we all got together was really just, you know, a sort of elbows 
and knees at each other, and um, we never just really kind of gelled in that way that you hoped family would. So when she said she wanted to move to Seattle, I thought, oh, gosh, is this even going to work? But I think that we were all excited by the possibility of this garden, and she bought the property. I I was just going to be part of the planning and and the gardening project. Sure. It was definitely definitely her her garden, and also she really felt strongly about her grandchildren's growing growing up with an experience of nature because um, she had raised us in the country very intentionally, so we could have that. And you know, in cities, you don't you don't necessarily. I mean, sometimes you have a yard, but sometimes you don't even have that. So yeah. it was it was very um, important to her, I think. And you do, you didn't that. know certainly didn't know what was in store for you. Hmm. No, we had no idea. <laughs> and when I look back now, and when I see pictures of the garden before, <laughs> like the you know the original photos, I just look at them and think, what were we thinking? I mean, it, I guess it says something about our personalities that we would see this overgrown, very, very neglected plot of land and decide to jump in and, and try, try to make it into something beautiful. We're speaking with Tara Austin Weaver, the author of a beautiful new memoir, Orchard House, How a Neglected Garden Taught One Family to Grow. Our focus in this hour, again, on Mother's and Mother's Day month of May. So, Tara, you were alluding a little bit to the experiences that all of you had as you transformed this garden together. Can you tell us more about that? Like, what was the duration of time and when did the lessons start happening and what lessons did you learn from your mother throughout this time you were cultivating a garden together? Well, the period of that the book covers is about four years. We're going into our sixth summer with the garden now. We started in the fall of 2009, and the lessons started pretty much from the very beginning. <laughs> and, you know, I would say that there are the lessons that the garden taught us, and there's also lessons that we learned about each other. Because, um, And this is something that, yeah, I don't know that we actually really knew it even at all, but definitely not the way we know it now. My mother and I work in really, really different ways, and she is, you know, full steam ahead, let's get things done. She's very, you know, she's had a very challenging life herself. Her mother died when she was three, and and she had a a rough growing up um, and has really taken care of herself, you know, since a very young age. And she just gets things done. And and I'm much slower, maybe more thoughtful. I want to research things. And, you know, definitely those two approaches rub up against each other. Hopefully we've, we've sort of... I think over time we have seen that developed a respect for the way that each other approaches things. She manages to accomplish far more than I do, although the truth is sometimes when you jump in swinging, you have to, you know, redo some of the things that Mm. you did because you didn't really plan it out. Mm. And I am much more methodical. I do all my research, but I don't get nearly as much done. So hopefully on good days we can meet in the middle and, you know, just realize that we both are different people and we come from different places and we can, you know, use both of our strengths to, for the best of the garden and the best of the family. Sounds like there's maybe more than respect now than even an appreciation for what the other person brings. Is that an overstatement? I, I think that the, I definitely, well, I, I really have learned so much about who she is as a person and what she has gone through and how that has shaped her. So I have a lot of admiration for 
what she survived and what she has accomplished. Um, let's let's come back to that, actually. Um, we'll take a quick break. But you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our focus in this hour, again, the beautiful new memoir by Tara Austin Weaver called Orchard House, really packed full with life lessons from generations of gardeners. That and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And with us, joining us from Cleveland, Ohio today, is Tara Austin Weaver, the author of the new memoir, Orchard House, our topic in this hour on mother and motherhood. Tara, to just pick up where we left off before the break, you were saying there's now kind of an appreciation or deep respect for what the other person brings, both on your mom's side that you noticed, as well as... Uh, you, of course, for your mom, and you were just getting into how has your relationship to your mom changed? What have you observed that was kind of taken for granted before you guys started to cultivate the garden sites that you didn't see or that now fit so much differently in, in your picture of her and the picture of life? Well, I don't think I understood entirely how difficult her life had been growing up and really, you know, the the strength that she has had to just dig down deep within herself and find to build the life that she has. And, you know, as I said, she was a single mother raising both myself and my younger brother all on her own without any family or community resources. But I've also really um, learned a bit about the limitations that she has within her own life because she hasn't realized how important community is and, you know, we, She didn't have much family. We don't have much family. But part of the story of Orchard House, for me, has been cultivating not only a garden, but also the community I found in Seattle and how valuable and essential that really is. I, I think some people are born into large families, and some people end up creating their own families, and that is something that I've been working pretty hard at, and I think it's been really a wonderful experience for her to see me do that as well because again it's not it's not something that it comes naturally to her but she is getting folded into the experience through my experience and there are you know people in Seattle now that I think of as my family um, an extended family and and it's wonderful because a lot of them have children as well and they come to the garden and it's really sort of become a gathering place for a lot of us but I, I think that um, that The learning and the lessons have been going both ways. You know, I, I have a friend who still still visits family 
living in a northern part of Italy, and she tells similar stories about a garden that the community shares and how everybody tends to this garden. And then when people are, you know, ready to go do their quote unquote shopping, they walk down the block to the community garden and they pick the eggplant and the peppers and the tomatoes, and then they go home and they cook. But it's just a very communal thing. Everybody takes care of it and everybody benefits from it. And and I love what you're saying about not only the community that's developed in Seattle, but also about how, how relationship has grown towards community and also towards the food they're growing through the children who are interacting with this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, how have you seen children respond to this garden in terms of their development with nature and their development within their own families? Well, I have a, I have a good friend that I actually write about in the book. Her story is part of it as well. And she has, uh, she has three children, but they came over for dinner one summer evening, and my, my, mother, <laughs> my mother lobbied hard. The garden is quite large. It's half an acre. And the areas that are up close to the house are pretty cultivated with beds of vegetables and flowers and some lawn for the children to play on. But my mom wanted the, the field, what we call the field, in the far end of the garden, which is mostly fruit trees. She wanted to just let it go wild. So it doesn't get mowed. It's just wild grasses, and I at first I was against this, but I've come to appreciate the beauty of it, and the kids just love it. They run through these wild grasses, <laughs> and my friend's son was just running and leaping, and he comes running back, and he goes, Mama, can we plant a field? And, of course, my friend has a much smaller yard, and she said, No, we can't. <laughs> we can't. But it's been really, I think, you know, I grew up again in the country and had that experience of sort of running wild and climbing trees and building forts, and I think it's really a vital experience. And so it's, I'm always very happy when my friends come to the garden, their children come, because it really is that sort of, you know, again, it's in the city limits, but it's a little bit of wildness. And I think that it's just very restorative to everyone. It is. You know, we had a, a an interview last week with the mother-daughter team that are, they're part of Fry Vineyards, and they have this, you know, hundreds of acres of ranch land and farmland and, and vineyards. And they were talking about the same thing, about what it was like to grow up on this land and and Katrina who's the matriarch of the family talks about you know my kids had to ha- they had this freedom they had this wildness being a part of the land and and we were very privileged in order to do that and and contrasting that experience with what it's like for so many people growing up in cities who don't have access to that kind of wild wilderness adventure and yet you are bringing this beautiful story about how it is tangible there are places that are not far from our busy city lives where we can go and have an experience of nature an experience of what it means to to be wild to live in the wild to witness the wild and and where fruit and food grows in in its own magical way it's it's really true and i have to say i um i give a lot of credit to the city of Seattle. And I, in some ways, I think this, the book is partially my, my love letter to the city and to the community I found there because they have community gardens and they have parks. And at one point there was um, a, a philosophy in the planning of Seattle that no, no family should live more than a mile walk to a park. And as a result, even today, the city is filled with greenery. And when I first moved up there, I felt like I was actually living in a park. There are squirrels everywhere. And I mean, it's a city, but it's a very livable city because people have you know, gone out of their way to, to do these things. And there's a tremendous um, community garden 
network throughout the city, and I know the schools are involved with school gardens. And I just think it's so, I mean, really, you know, you can talk about so many lessons that gardening will teach you, but for a child to see the wonder of a soil breaking or a seed breaking soil and growing and just the persistence of nature. And, you know, again, sometimes I I run up against that in, in uh, frustrating ways because we certainly have weeds that are persistent, but it really is an inspiring thing. And it's a very hopeful thing, I think, particularly, you know, we're going into the spring gardening season now. And I, I always say that, uh, that, you know, gardening is the most hopeful thing because every year you try again and it doesn't matter, you know, if you, Maybe things didn't go so well last year, but there really is a persistence to it and um, and tremendous rewards. But but this time of year, I really, you know, maybe I didn't get my peas in on time last year, but I'm going to do better this year. Mm. So it, it just feels like a very human experience. Mm. Yeah, lots of second chances <laughs> next year. Yes, gardening uh, is the kingdom of second chances. <laughs> <laughs> very forgiving. Or, or third, third chances. Um, well, it just shed a completely different light or new light on all the efforts throughout cities, throughout the country, where maybe from the angle of teaching children how to eat better, as you know, small of a plot as just two or three or five raised beds, it is the gateway, it is the window to nature, to the experience of nature, to the experience of growing something and tending something yourself. What I love about Orchard House, the memoir you wrote, How a Neglected Garden taught one family to grow is a summary on its website. It says, for someone who has ever planted something that they wished would survive or try to mend something that seemed forever broken, a tale of healing and growth in an unlikely place. I do think that window of nature that, in this case, the backyard was for you and for the children that are experiencing it every every day now, Uh, it is the same work that is being done in so many metropolitan areas where children don't have access to parks with overgrown grass. Everything is kind of sprayed and kept, you know, neat. And often there are signs, don't do not touch or step on the grass, which is kind of ridiculous. Why is it there? We've come to a society of visual appreciation only, but look at it, don't touch. And your book is such a good reminder that all these efforts to especially get children involved and have them touch something and grow something and try again if it didn't work out. It's such a metaphor and real lesson for life. I think it is. And I think it is, it's just vital because again, you know, life is a messy thing and you have to jump in there and you have to get your hands dirty and you will fail. I mean, absolutely. We all do at one point or another. And, you know, so often I think that there's an urge to want to protect children, but this, this is how we learn. Yes, we're speaking with Tara Austin Weaver, the author of Orchard House, the new memoir. And um, Tara, we want to hear, of course, the greatest lessons that you personally took away or that the garden is teaching you, or maybe even your mom is teaching you every day, that when we come back, you're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Stay tuned for more.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Orchard House, How a Neglected Garden Taught One Family to Grow, a beautiful new memoir. And we have the writer, the author of that memoir with us, Tara Austin Weaver, who's joining us from Cleveland, Ohio, the story of a backyard orchard in Seattle. Tara, right before we went to the last break, we were talking about the lessons that we can learn from Mother Nature all around us. And you have quite a lot that you've distilled from the time you spent cultivating this wild garden with half an acre of garden land. Can you share with us, kind of through the lens of a garden, what can we learn and apply as a society? Well, I think I think we mentioned before just about the persistence of nature being such an inspiring thing. But the one thing that I take away from the garden just overall is really that nature is about abundance. And I think that's something we really lose in popular culture. I mean, you plant one pea seed and you get a vine that has so many pods filled of so many seeds, which are you know could all feasibly, if we don't eat them, go on to make other plants. And I feel like, you know, particularly these days, everyone's sort of, you know, I got to get mine, or maybe that's the message that we're told. But really, the nature of a garden is abundance. And it's been so lovely to have, you know, fruit trees that just drowned us in pears and apples so much so that we have to give them away. And again, that's, you know, that relates back to community and how you build those bonds with other people and how you're there for them and how they're they can be there for you. So I think that it's just really given me a different perspective on how life could be. Yeah, it brings up such a sweet, my my agricultural endeavors. Uh, I was an entrepreneur, I was six years old. And I got, you know, two or three, I don't remember, a small handful of big beans uh, as seeds from our teacher. And I found this perfect little corner spot that I thought would, would just be ideal and it turned out it was every single one of these sprouted and as you said out of five bean seeds I got five bean plants with maybe 20 or 30 or 40 beans in 10 or 12 or 15 pods and so I ended up with almost 200 bean seeds and if I had planted those I think I could have lift off of that harvest for a week so it's it's, it's <laughs> right. just so interesting how and that's you know five five seeds in your hand to start with it's so interesting how what you're saying the the really the message throughout society the message throughout media is kind of scarcity and survival and alarm systems and it's just there's an underlying tone of survival that is suggested and a garden, from what I'm hearing and what my own experience is, is, is the antidote. It's the opposite. It's actually what's really happening is abundance and community. The people who come around cultivate this garden with more food throughout the season at times that you know what to do with um, are also people who bring the individual skills and the individual talents and personalities both to the garden as well as to each other's lives. And as you have cultivated community through this garden, your your friendship circle, I'm sure, is is a representation of the talents throughout the season of what is needed. You know, in spring when the when the rains come or the winter, maybe there's somebody who is an excellent plumber or a roofer to keep the house dry. So it's kind of it's interesting how you are describing the reflection of of community and it seems like it's very literal uh, what the garden is suggesting to us. You know, it really has been, um, and it, it's wonderful now. I mean, I, I've been sort of struggling to grow rhubarb recently, and I had two neighbors this year just give me huge 
massive rhubarb roots that they <laughs> dug up in their own garden. And, you know, nothing goes to waste. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. And it is, you know, just the joy of being able to share something like that. I feel like that is, is really the true, the true heart of community. Think about it. I mean, for years, agriculture is what kept us together. It kept families together because we needed each other to bring in the wheat harvest. And it brought communities together because you needed a miller for your wheat. And we've, we've lost sight of a lot of that, and now our communities function very differently. But, you know, just even planting some seeds in your backyard can shift that paradigm in a certain way. Even if it's just through conversation while you're tending to a garden together, much like what it's done for your relationship with your mother. Absolutely. We do, <laughs> we do a lot of chatting over our, our weeding our beds. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for creating such a beautiful, I mean, sharing your beautiful story, creating it in a book so we might all learn these life lessons and remember abundance and community and the magic in a seed. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking to you. (laughs) Wonderful. And that's, again, Tara Austin Weaver. Check out her website, Tara Weaver, that's T-A-R-A, and then Weaver, W-E-A-V-E-R.com. Tara is a food and travel and environmental writer, She has authored several books. And Tara, you're also the editor of Edible Seattle, isn't that right? I am, Edible Seattle Magazine, yes. Yes, check that out again, taraweaver.com. Pleasure, and um, thanks for creating those containers and vessels for us to all drink from. Beautiful to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks, we'll talk to you soon. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. I love that last question, how she answered that the one of the biggest lessons she's taken away is that nature is abundant. And when you plant one seed, you get so many more. And it just, it seems to be very, it's, it's like the law of nature, this magical thing that happens when you start with one. There are so many beautiful things to harvest from that. And, and it's literal and it's metaphorical. And as Helga, you were talking about the way people and communities come together and bring their different skills and talents, it's the same thing. If you invest in one area, you're going to be able to harvest so many things from it and share those things with other people and live out those things, whether it's art or food. Yeah, I love that her mom wanted to keep that one corner Mm. unmowed, Mm -hmm. you know, just wild, overgrown. And it sounds like that's the favorite part of the kids now, (laughs) to see that there is an area that is kind of unmanaged that manages itself in a way that just, you know, does whatever it wants to. And interesting how that's communicated to the kids where they just romp around like crazy there's they no there's no limits too. there's no row there's nothing there's no man-made creating or man-made order you know there's sure. no row crop there's no structure to it it's just what nature provides and and the kids are placed in that environment of unlimitedness and no structure that's it's beautiful how that translates into complete playfulness and no boundaries, <laughs> and the mm. wish to create that at home, which of course is impossible. But great lesson and great inspiration to remind ourselves how important that is for children and really for the child in us as mm-hmm. well. Agreed. Which area in your part is completely limitless, you know, whether that's going swimming or being in the forest for a moment, but where do we actually leave man-managed environments? Great question. Again, Orchard House, how a neglected garden taught one family to grow. And we're staying with the topic of growing because what's up next, of course, is produce, the magic and the wisdom in produce from your own backyard or from the produce dock. 
What's next is what's in season, our weekly update for you to save a pretty dollar by learning what's coming in, where prices are at, how to store things, and everything around produce and the grocery store. What's in season? And with us now, I hope, is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. Earl, are you with us? Absolutely. Have no fear. I'm on the phone with you. <laughs> I love it. Earl, it's mid-May, and um, yeah. wow, it's heating up, it's getting warmer, the soil is getting warmer. You can literally see every day at Farmer's Market around the San Francisco Bay Area, at least, that there's one more item, and then there's one more item. Yeah. Uh, wow, this must be an exciting time. Winter is clearly over, and we're just announcing the upcoming summer crops will be hitting us soon. Is that is that what you're experiencing? Where where are we at? Yeah, this is right on the threshold. And this year the threshold's a little earlier because of well, out here in California, uh, uh warmer temperatures, not much of a uh winter with uh rain and temperatures. Uh so it's it's come on a little early. So hmm. right on the threshold of the stone fruit season. Oh and, really? You know, when I think of stone fruit, I think of peaches. But, oh, there's plums, there's nectarines, there's white and yellow peaches and nectarines. And that's just the very beginning, of course, cherries. So mm. this is the beginning of a season that's going to go all the way, gosh, up until October 1. And it, it, it changes, and yet you're still getting peaches, but there's so many different varieties that characterize the season in which they're coming, whether it's in May or June or July, they're all a little different. In May, early product. This is some of the early stuff, uh, first two, three weeks of the season. So the product is not as sweet as what you're going to get in June or July, um, but they have great flavor. They have nice tartness, and generally the very early ones uh, I think are, are very good. Then there might be a little week or two when they're not as good, but the very earliest, which we're seeing right now, are extraordinary. You are gonna see, so not only yellow peaches, but you're going to see uh, white and yellow nectarines, and also apricots, and plums are off a little this year. But that's what is just beginning to come out. So every day, or however frequently you shop, keep your eyes peeled because you're going to see some nice little displays, colorful, a little higher priced right now because it's just sure. emerging. Um, supply is still tight. So, Earl, tell me if this is true, because at least this has been my experience. The early peaches, are they a little bit firmer than the, the later season peaches? Well, quite often they are. Mm -hmm. um, a couple reasons. One is that there's a little urgency to get the product off because you want to hit market fast. And this is really the only time where you can be the first in the, in the market in the mm -hmm. stone fruit. Because the rest of the year, of course, you're, you're following the days previous. As a grower, so, you mean, yeah. Yes, and so the product, so what you want to do is, this, is a, this can be a tricky time because these are the first ones and, and they, they don't ripen as, they ripen differently. So look at the bottom, meaning where the stem is, and if there's a lot of green within that stem bowl as the stem enters the piece of fruit, if there's a lot of green there, you may want to pass. So pick them up and look for pretty uniform, full color, 
kind of rich color, not a pale yellow, a little more golden. Uh, the colors of uh, orange or red, see if there's a little depth to it. That that's Those are good indicators for ripeness. This is really, at least in my experience, because I learned so much about mm-hmm. peaches from you, Earl, and I used to think I wasn't much of a peach fan, and it really is, for me, it's the early season peaches that I like so much, because I like them a little bit on the firmer side, and at least in my experience, even, even the sugar being high at the beginning of the spring, I almost feel like there's a little bit more acid or like a little bit more tartness early in the season. And that balance with a little bit firmer, I mean, I can eat them. I can just eat so many and easily. Yeah. Crunchy. Like a, like a floral apple or something. And as you get later in the season, when they get really, really soft and juicy, that's a different experience entirely. But this is so eatable for me this time of year when they're, when they're early. It, It is higher in acid. That's very true. Um, you know, like I said earlier, the crop has come on earlier this year, about 10 days, and it's pretty much uh, understood that it is the, the lack of the winter that we've had because the heat is going to create a faster, earlier bloom. An earlier bloom is going to mean the, the fruit starts, uh, it, uh, comes out of its jet bloom jacket earlier and obviously starts ripening. We've had a pretty good spring, no major hails or rainstorms, even though we had a little bit of rain. So um, a little bit of a hiccup on some of the early uh, varieties because, well, a lot of times it's not known exactly why, but there are some chill hour uh, issues, and that is, a, that is due to the heat. Um, stone, uh, tree fruit needs a certain amount of hours under 45 degrees, and when it doesn't get that, the uh, havoc ensues. And it's not just one year, it's kind of accumulation of years, and that's what's been happening out here. So in order to not throw something away, I know nectarines and peaches um, ripen well at home. You can actually ripen them. And uh, with early peaches, what's the trick? What? How can you, should you just not try, should you not attempt, because there's not enough sugar in it to start that internal fermentation, or how, how does it How does it yeah. work? Um, well, uh, I'll go back to what I mentioned a couple moments ago about look at, looking at the stem bowl. And the green on that stem bowl, or excessive green, means that it was picked too early. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, in other words, you're gonna, every peach or anything you're going to pick is going to be firm. They're, they're not going to soften on the tree. I mean, they will, but they'll be mushy and overripe by the time you get them. Oh, okay. They need a uh-huh. certain amount of sugars maturity. You know, the difference between maturity and ripeness. Maturity is it's time to pick because it's gotten what it's needed from the tree to be ready to be picked. That's maturity. Ripeness is what happens after it's picked. It's allowed to soften, and the sugars start turning the starch a little bit, and bingo, now it's ready. And then if they are mature, even though not ripe, but mature, you can ripen all of those stone fruits at home on your counter for a couple of days. Yeah, and of course, we're going to talk more about this as the season goes on. But, you know, we've talked about in years past about uh, separating them, don't let them touch sure. each other, put them on a, on a natural fiber cloth, those sorts of things. And those hold two no matter what time of year it is. But I would be, hold your horses a little bit. There's a month to come of this wonderful product. You'll save a little more money, too, by not buying them now. But definitely, it's time to get into it. Just, Just be... Take care in picking the fruit. Make sure it's got that higher color, uh, more 
mature. Sure, and and always try in the produce aisle because they are still a little bit steep, and if you get disappointed, you might have spoiled your peach experience for this season, which would be so sad because great things are to come. <laughs> Thank you, Earl. That's mm. wonderful. Peaches. Wow, Peaches we have and apricots and. Yeah, other um, stones, nectarines, yeah, nectarines. nectarines. Yeah. yeah, and the different colors. Yeah, definitely the apricots. Again, that's a season that's going to continue. We're just at the very beginning. Great, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for that update. Peaches and yep. stone fruit is where it's just starting to be at, and we'll have you back with another produce item next week. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thanks Love so it. much. Thanks Earl. so much, Earl. Earl. Take Thanks. care. Bye bye. Bye. Bye now. Bye. Wow, beautiful hour. It's amazing to hear Earl speak about produce and me having so vividly the interview with um, our guest today, Tara Austin Weaver, the author of Orchard House uh, in, in mind and understanding how every head of lettuce speaks to us in that sense. Hmm. It's just really beautiful. I really appreciate that it was an activity that allowed her to build a closer relationship with someone in her family. I think that you know, I don't know how many, how much time we make for activities. And I think part of that might be because I feel like maybe with our busy lives, we don't know how many activity options we have. Yeah, it's true. I was listening to her speak about, you know, getting this property with her mom or her mom buying it and her picturing herself being part of it in the cultivation. And I was thinking of my family. And of course, I'm here and my family's in Germany. That makes it uh, impossible in a way. But that's a big step, and it's a, it's a brave step. And I think the fear of being that close to somebody who, as she, she said, she wasn't gelling with is the last thing you would want to do. You want to move further away from and not get a piece of property and cultivate it and clean it up. So, yeah, that took a lot of courage on her side. Well, I think that the garden is also a really lovely buffer. There's something about the beauty of nature that I think makes for, it's an inherent conversation piece, but it also can transform the conversation into something really real because it, it is also grueling work, you know? it's Yes, and the pitfalls and the failures and what's what didn't work and... Um, it's all alive and real and in front of you and through your hands, success and failure, or through your mom's hands or the collaboration. Very, very true. And again, even with produce, if we pay attention to our food once a day, that relationship can already be established to the natural world that we learn from and share a meal with breaking bread, so to say. Wonderful. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be back with another topic actually on motherhood and mothers, the third show in our mini series of three episodes focused on Mother's Day, month of May. Oh, that's even, even rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming up next week, much about storytelling as well. You'll have a great week. We'll see you soon. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash an organic conversation thank you for your contribution 
An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helber and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time next week. See you then. Bye.